This is the Extra Innings Podcast. We're going to Extra Innings. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking down all the latest with the blue. Hosted by Dodger insider and award-winning reporter. You have one for most entertaining talk show host to listen to while on the way to work. David Vassay. Welcome to episode 16 of the Extra Innings Podcast. We have another great episode for you today. Andre Ethier will check in. First time we have spoken to him since his appearance at the draft as a ambassador for the Dodgers in Denver. Also, Andre is a little fired up over his Phoenix Phoenix Suns looking like they're going to be um, maybe choking away the NBA Finals. So we will talk to Andre about that and baseball and uh, a lot of other stuff, as we always do. Always like to poke the bear a little bit. And also, we're going to have a very special guest, uh, a connection to the Brooklyn Dodgers, the 1955 Boys of Summer. Gil Hodges unfortunately passed away in 1972, but his son, Gil Hodges Jr., is going to join us today, and I guess I'll tell you why. Number one, I have this weird, strange connection to Gil Hodges. Nothing familial of any sort, but I don't know, like growing up a Dodger fan and listening to Vince Scully my entire life just talk about how great Gil Hodges was and Just hearing the stories about the boys of summer and how Gil Hodges and Pee Wee Reese were the two calming forces on that team and really the strength behind those guys. Uh, I I feel like sometimes Gil Hodges gets a little shortchanged in history and the way the boys of summer, the 55 Brooklyn Dodgers, are remembered because obviously Jackie Robinson is going to be the first one everybody talks about And then after that, you know, Roy Campanella, three-time MVP award winner, Pee Wee Reese, uh, the captain up the middle, Duke Snyder, Carl Erskine, uh, those type of guys always seem to get talked about more than Gil Hodges. And I always felt like Gil Hodges deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. Vince Scully believes that Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame. And we really, in Los Angeles, don't know enough about Gil Hodges. And in some respects, I feel like the Los Angeles Dodgers haven't really paid Gil Hodges the same type of respect and celebration that the New York Mets have because Gil Hodges is a New York guy, played virtually his entire career with the Brooklyn Dodgers before the Dodgers moved out here in 1958. Then after a year or two, he went back to the Mets because he wanted to play in New York and then became their manager and a manager of one of the all-time great miracle teams, the Miracle Mets of 1969. And if you ever go to City Field, there's two banks of elevators And one is a Tom Seaver lobby, and they have a big bust of Seaver's head right there when you get off the elevator or walk into this part of City Field. And there's another bank of elevators that is named the Gil Hodges lobby, and they have a big bust of Gil Hodges. They have a big picture of Gil Hodges in the rotunda there. 
So the Mets, I feel like, have a stronger connection to Gil Hodges, but his connection is to the Dodgers. And I know they gave Gil a bobblehead night in 2017, and I think these days that's as big as retiring a number. So in some respects, and I've always said this, ever since this ownership group has taken over for uh, the McCourts, there's one guy that is connected to Los Angeles more than any one of the people in the upper tier of ownership, and that's Lon Rosen. Lon Rosen uh, is grown up in L.A., knows the history of the Lakers, the Dodgers, of this city, and I feel like he's the driving force behind celebrating the history of the Dodgers. So kudos to him and for bringing in Gil Hodges for Gil Hodges Jr., I should say, for that bobblehead night. And look, I don't know what else the Dodgers could do, but I I feel like in this Dodger Hall of Fame or whatever they're doing now, Gil Hodges should be honored in that way. And I think we're all waiting for number 14 to go into the Hall of Fame and for the Dodgers in turn to retire his number. So that's where all this is coming from. We're going to hear from Gil Hodges Jr. coming up. And I guess another reason why I thought about Gil Hodges Jr. and Gil Hodges and just how much I love the uh, Camelot times of the Brooklyn Dodgers was watching the last play at Shea. That's a Billy Joel concert slash documentary. It has such a great history of Shea Stadium, of Flushing, Queens, and how that all got built. And it was connected to the Dodgers because that's where Robert Moses, the city planner, the big head honcho out there, wanted Walter O'Malley to move the Dodgers. They He wanted the Dodgers to play at Shea Stadium. That was his vision. And Walter O'Malley's vision was to stay in Brooklyn and to actually build a new Ebbets Field where the Brooklyn Nets now have the Barclays Center. So both guys had a vision, and it didn't line up for their own purposes, and that's why uh, the Dodgers moved out west along with the Giants a year later, and the Mets were created. The Mets colors are created from the Dodgers and Giants colors, and if you're from Long Island, you became a Mets fan, and I strongly suggest if you're a baseball fan and you, not even if you're a Billy Joel fan, if you kind of like Billy Joel, that is documentary you can find it on your smart tv or phone just type in last play at shea you will love it and it just brought back all those memories of gil hodges and the brooklyn dodgers for me and just reading about them and hearing about them stories about them and that's why uh, this podcast is a great opportunity to have a guy like Gil Hodges Jr. on to talk about his father and celebrate his father, who not only was a great baseball player, but also a great man. Batting leadoff, host of the Extra Innings podcast, David Vasse. All right. I know you want to know about the trade deadline, who the Dodgers may get. I have no answers at this point in time. Teams still think they have a chance. So until it's five days before July 30th, I just don't feel like there's any point to talk about who might be available and who might not be available. The only guys I could tell you that are available are Jose Barrios of the Twins, pitching-wise, Jose Barrios of the Twins, Danny Duffy of the Royals, the two Cubs pitchers, Zach Davies and Kyle Hendricks. Outside of that, you have to figure out when you get closer to July 30th where all this is going to shake out. And I guess I wanted to take out this time, since I don't have any inside info more than that on the trade deadline, 
just to share with you how great it was to be sitting alongside Charlie Steiner for those six games while Rick Monday was out. And I have to thank Lon Rosen, the Dodgers, Stan Kasten, Don Martin for allowing me to sit alongside Charlie. And the number one thank you is to Charlie because he was more than gracious with me during those six games. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about doing play-by-play, which has never been my aspiration, ever. Uh, my dream is coming true right now, just hosting Dodger Talk and traveling with the team and reporting on a team the way that I've been allowed to the last 10 years. That's been my dream, not doing play-by-play, but I feel like I proved something to myself, first and foremost, that I could do it. But what I didn't expect was how intense it is. It's kind of like being an umpire. Players could take pitches off. They could be in the outfield and daydream a little bit. But an umpire does not have a pitch off in a game. And play-by-play, guys, or if you're sitting in one of those two seats, an analyst or play-by-play seat, you cannot take a pitch off. You cannot take a pitch off because something can happen that you need to describe on the radio. TV's different. I'm talking about radio. There is not one pitch that you can take off because you have to describe it, you have to explain it, and give some background on it. So I have such a greater appreciation for what Rick Monday and Charlie Steiner do on a day-in, day-out basis. And heck, when they were traveling, that's a real grind mentally to have that focus each and every day. Not to mention the preparation. You better be prepared if you're going to sit in that chair in a radio or television play-by-play broadcast. You've heard Vin Scully talk about it for years. Preparation is the key to succeeding because you could be horrible, but if you're prepared, you have a fighting chance. And that was the one thing I remembered going into it these last six games. Tim Conway Jr. actually gave me a great tip. He was so excited for me uh, a couple of days before. He told me, I know you have all these stories about players and what makes them tick and some background info on them. It's great, but you better write it down because in the heat of a broadcast, you may forget it. So organize your thoughts, write it down for every player. And that's what I did. I wrote down bullet points of stories, things that they've talked about, went back to listen to some interviews where they gave me some insight. And that's how I was able, top of mind, to have something for almost every player that pitched or came up to bat. So that's a little background on it. And uh, I learned that there's a beat to the game, all of that. So it, it was really it was really a great experience. I can't say enough about how well Charlie Steiner treated me and Uh, I will say this. I was happy when Rick Monday returned for that first game of the Giants series because I could stretch my legs. I could actually breathe and take a pitch or two off, um, something that you couldn't do when you're sitting in that chair. So awesome experience, and thank you again to Charlie Steiner for treating me so great and the rest of management, AM570 and Dodgers management. All right, like I said, I just finished watching the last play at Shea, and it just brought back a lot of great memories and stories that I heard throughout the years about the great uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, the boys of summer, and 
it just reminded me of how strongly, in a weird way, I felt that Gil Hodges was my favorite Brooklyn Dodger, even though I never got to see him play. I never met him. He passed away, unfortunately, way before I was born. But I was happy, thanks to Steve Brenner and Jay Horowitz, to connect with his son, the great Gil Hodges Jr. Gil, thanks a lot for the time. Appreciate it. David, my pleasure. Always glad I could be there. How much um, do you embrace being kind of the lasting legacy of your father, considering you have his name? And I got to be quite honest, you look quite a bit like him. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. You you know, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of, of who he was, what he did, his accomplishments, both on the field and even more so off the field the tributes that were paid to him while he was alive, and even more so in in the years after his passing, um, I still run into people who stop and talk and and speak to me like they had dinner with him two months ago. You know, the fond memories. I've never seen anything like the memories of a ball player that, that people have held dear to them over the time. Gil, you were only 19 when he managed the Miracle Mets. So how much do you remember about your father being part of the Boys of Summer in Brooklyn? Well, I, I was young at the time and, and you know, not, not realizing it, it wasn't a rare occasion, more commonplace to, to have Pee Wee Reese or, or Duke Snyder at the house and, you know, have no realization of who they were or what they were doing for a living. Um, I, I didn't get to understand that till later on. But, it, you know, it was great uh, growing up with a father who was so admired by, by his peers, um, which was terrific. And, and Brooklyn, I was young at the time. I do remember moving out to Los Angeles uh, with the Dodgers and the family, uh, you know, we moved out there when when the team moved out there, and and that was a great experience. I was a little older at the time, nine, eight years old, nine years old. So the memory is a little foggy, but not too bad. Do you? Uh, I'm sure your mom may have told you stories, but what was it like for your dad, who was such a fabric of Brooklyn, to all of a sudden have to not only pick up his career but pick up his family and move west? Well, you know, it w- it was difficult, but um, being a professional, that's what you did. You know, wh- where the team played, or or he was lucky not to have been traded, spending so many years with the Dodgers. But you know, those were things that were part of the industry and still are today, where where the players, you know, don't have the roots. I think the longevity for a player on one team today is totally different than it was back then. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, you know, my dad got to spend a, a, a good part of his time in Brooklyn. Being from Indiana, it was it was even more difficult for my mom, who was a Brooklyn girl, you know, leaving her family to go to California, where dad's family was still in Indiana. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was something that you just did. You understood it and, and you did it. And we did it as a family. Gil, I've read so many stories about not only your father, but the, his teammates on the Brooklyn Dodgers during the offseason. They had to get jobs. They didn't make the type of salary that Uh-oh. players today make. Do you remember <laughs> what job your dad had? Uh, I can remember that dad worked for 
the Chrysler Corporation at a car dealership in Brooklyn. Jeez. <laughs> in the in the off season, yes. I mean, you know, retrospectively, of course, I wish he was playing today yeah. with his stats and numbers. We we wouldn't be thinking about those things. But you know, that's that's actually what they did. You know, it, it wouldn't be a rare. A rare instance to to get on the train and be sitting next to a ball player, you know, who was working in the winter. Is it? I mean, from your side of the story, being the son of Gil Hodges, you always hear about the fans and how much those players meant to that borough. How much did the borough mean to your dad and his teammates? I, I think the the fan participation that the Dodgers experienced. Um, even though young, but getting to and uh, you know reading about it in later years was just phenomenal. I mean, you know the the Brooklyn Bums and, and Happy Felton and his knothole yeah. game. I mean, it, it's just just incredible. I don't I don't think there'll ever be fans who connected more with a team in any sport um, than than they did. Are you okay with, or were you okay with sharing your dad with all these admiring fans? Well, yeah, you know, that was his job and they loved him. But when he came home, um, you know, he was my father. You know, even the times he punished me, he was still my father. So it it wasn't sharing. It was more of an admiration to see how someone was was so well-liked at his job. You know, and, and regardless of what the job was, um, not only the fans, but his peers respected him. Who do you think he was the closest to on the team? You know, there, there were several of them. Um, he was close with Joe Pignatano, who he later took with him uh, to, to coach with the Mets. Uh, he coached with the Washington Senators. Um, Rube Walker coached with, you know, the Washington Senators coached with the Mets, but they, they all, they were all close. Dad was close with Jackie. Um, you know, they had a special bond. Uh, Dad respected Jackie so much um, and, and not for the color barrier, but for the athlete that he was, you know, the, the, the unprecedented ability to play the sport the way he played with such heart and such desire. Um, they became very close friends, and and Tom and Rachel were close. How did your dad handle that? Where Jackie would be, you know, he would have to deal with a lot. How would your dad deal with all that? Uh, dad, dad helped. Um, I've always felt that dad helped, not Jackie, deal with it because unfortunately, in in those times, those were things that that Jackie had to honestly deal with alone. And of course, with the, with the help of Rachel, but dad was more of somewhat an overseer or protector, you know, once they got onto the baseball field. I think there were a lot less altercations um, between other players from other teams and Jackie uh, that would have taken place had my father not been there. I guess you, I mean, if you want to be part of the Brooklyn Dodgers, you needed the blessing of two guys, Pee Wee Reese and Gil Hodges, right? Correct. That's absolutely correct. And if you wanted to do anything detrimental to Jackie Robinson, you had to go through Gil Hodges. And that wasn't something that too many people wanted to do. 
Was he an intim- intimidating figure, Gil? He he wasn't intimidating. You know, when I think of intimidating, I think Frank Howard, you know, or or, or William McCovey, big big men in stature. Um, Dad was six one, which at the time was was tall, uh, two hundred and five pounds, but exceptionally strong. I mean, I saw him pick pick a feller up off of first base by his shirt with one hand and turn him around and put him on the bag. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, that player wasn't going to start anything with anyone. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I would say so. Right, and, and that more or less, you know, when, when things like that occur, that more or less travels through not only your club but through the rest of your league rapidly. So you know that if there's altercations, you don't want to fool around with the first baseman. Gil, uh, I wanted to share something with you. I interviewed Vince Scully for the first time when I started traveling with the Dodgers back in 2012. And I had so many questions about the boys of summer, the Brooklyn Dodgers, just what he saw, what he heard, his experiences. And he told me something very interesting about your father, and I wanted to share it with you. I had two wishes before I leave this mortal coil. One was for Walter O'Malley to get into the Hall of Fame. He made it. The other is for Gil Hodges, and I cannot understand why he's not in there. I, I just don't know. When you hear that, Gil, uh, what, what do you think? I, I, loud and clear. I get chills. Um, I get chills because I, you know, uh, of knowing this, this gentleman for decades uh, and, and – and the work that he performed, which was unbelievable, but to, to hear him say that something, you know, say that about your father, um, who got to see ball players from every team for you know six over six decades perform, and and not understand why Dad's not in the Hall of Fame, um, it makes me feel good. I mean, I do I want him to get in the Hall of Fame? Of course. I do. I want him more to get into the Hall of Fame right now for my mother, who's 94 years old, and only pray to the Lord that she gets she's alive to get to see it happen. Then for myself, I'm, you know, for myself, he's in my Hall of Fame. I mean, people treat him like he's in the Hall of Fame. When people say, oh, your dad's in the Hall of Fame, and you say, no, he's not, they go, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, they, they don't believe it. They think it's, you know, that I'm incorrect. So I'd like to see it happen, uh, one, because I think he does deserve it, and two, because I'd like to see it happen while my mom's here to enjoy it. When's the next opportunity for that to possibly happen? That's, they're going to do the voting in December this year, I think at the winter meetings. It was supposed to be last year, but of course, you know, with the pandemic and, and everything that transpired, they moved it till this year. So we have our fingers crossed and a couple extra prayers, and hopefully uh, it'll come to fruition. Gil, uh, you know, mentioning Vin Scully, hearing his voice and his voice say your father's name, can you tell us what their relationship was like? Just very, very close. You know, um, I think just two people who, who respected each other, not only for their their profession, but the way they led their lives, um, you know, dad being a devout Catholic, always at church on the road, um, never missing mass. Um, Vince, you know, also 
being a devout Catholic and knowing that, um, you know, it's not easy after after a, a game on Saturday to get up early on Sunday morning uh, in a, a new town and make sure you find out where the mass is, what time it starts, and make the preparations to get there and get back to the hotel before the bus leaves. Um, but there was no missing. You know, those were, I, I think... Um, that was one of his high priorities. You know, I think there was, there was it was um, family, uh, God, and country were, were his strong beliefs. And would Vin and your dad go to mass together on the road or in Brooklyn? Oh, sure, several times. Yeah, not not so much in you know when the Dodgers were here. Sure, but but you know, a- absolutely. You know, it would it. It wouldn't be commonplace um, because the schedules were so different, but, you know, they would see each other yeah. or see each other at, at church. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's sort of fortified the bond and respect for each other. Wow. That's amazing stuff. And I don't know, like I feel uh, I said this before, but for whatever reason, I I'm always gravitating towards your father when people ask or talk about the boys of summer. Everybody has their favorite. (laughs) And I never saw your dad play. I never met him. But Gil Hodges is my guy. I don't know why, but that's my guy. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell you something in all honesty and and, you know, not to show any partialism or favoritism. It's not the worst choice you could have made. (laughs) I just, you know, Gil, everything that you said, it's not just about the player, but I heard stories about the man. Well, and and I think think that's what people got to see who didn't get to see him play, like you. You know, when he he managed the Mets, when he took a team that, that, you know, that didn't have the belief in themselves – and after one season in the, in the following season, instilled enough belief in themselves to win the World Series against a team that was almost an all-star team. Yeah, I mean, the 1969 Orioles were on the second baseman hit 40 home runs. I, I mean, they were just incredible. I, I can remember uh, a quick story. I can remember being in the clubhouse with my father. Uh, and, the, you know, the managers always have this separate room. And looking at the statistic sheets that they hand out of both teams and looking at the Mets and looking at the Orioles and, and saying to him, to my father, I can't believe you're on the same field with this team. I mean, there's between Boog Powell and Davey Johnson, and I think they had four pitchers who won 20 games and the probably one of the greatest third basemen who have ever played the game at third base. Yeah. And he got up from his desk and closed the door and sat back down and said to me, don't repeat that again. He said, I have 25 guys outside who believe they can win. Now that didn't mean anything to me at the time. Yeah. You know, I'm 19 years old. Oh, that's terrific. You have 25 guys who think they could win. And sure enough, they lost the first game and won the next four. So I guess there was something to it. Yeah, and you know what? I always remember the 88 Dodgers. That was my 69 Mets because they did, not, they did not have the talent. Nobody believed in them. And that sounds exactly like something Tommy Lasorda would tell the 88 Dodgers. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and God rest his soul, I was out at, 
at the ballpark a couple of years ago that had a bobble night for dad and, and got to see Tommy. He was in the stands. Um, but I can remember Tommy calling me one year, um, the day of the voting. He called the house in the morning and he said, Gilly, listen to me. Dad's getting in. I spoke for 12 minutes last night. He's getting in. Listen to me. And Tommy, I can't thank you enough. I was so excited, but I've learned over the years not to say anything to mom because I, you know, she was in her eighties and I didn't want to build that up. Yeah. And sure enough, the votes came out and he didn't get in. Well, hopefully this year's the year because he deserves to be in there. Uh, maybe Joe well, Torre can you. be his sponsor because Joe Torre has a great sense of history for the game, and he's a New oh, Yorker. Absolutely. He knows how much your dad meant to uh, uh, the city of New York and as a player. So hopefully Joe Torre can be the guy. Well, fingers crossed, David. Fingers crossed. Hey, and one more thing. Like you mentioned, the 69 Mets, uh, Vince Scully's final call after Oral Hershiser struck out Tony Phillips in 88. Like uh-huh. the 69 Mets, the impossible <laughs> dream relived. <laughs> he's, he's the best there ever was. He really the was. Best. Gil, yep. uh, I, I kept it together. Uh, I love your dad, even though I never met him or saw him play. Um, and God bless you and your family. And I, I really hope that it happens for your mom, that your dad gets in the Hall of Fame and gets celebrated the way he should uh, in Cooperstown. Well, I appreciate it. And thank you very much, David. I appreciate it. You and your family stay well and stay safe. Thank you. You too, Gil. We'll talk soon. You bet. There he goes, Gil Hodges Jr., the son of the former Brooklyn Dodger, Gil Hodges. And I don't know why I was getting so emotional during that interview, but I was. And it's just such a shame that his father passed away suddenly because of a heart attack on all days, Easter Sunday, 1972. Think about that, a devout Catholic having a sudden heart attack on Easter Sunday in 1972. We lost his dad way too young, and his legacy lives on through him and his siblings and his mom, and hopefully the committee, the Veterans Committee, or whomever that is voting on whether or not Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame Hopefully they make the right decision coming up this December. My favorite. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to see you're not wearing khakis. Your favorite. And not everyone holds themselves to a high physical standard around here, but... Uh, Probably not Vasse's favorite. I know no one listens to your show, so... <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Just kidding. DB is joined by Andre Ethier. Well, he is fresh back from Denver after being the Dodgers representative at the amateur draft. Andre... Number one, great to hear your voice again. I'm glad you survived the Mile High City. Yeah, thanks, uh, there, Dicky. Uh, <laughs> glad to be glad to ha- be back after a little uh, week off hiatus. There, uh, you know, joined in the uh, All Star break. Uh, you know, activities that the uh, team get got to, and um, yeah, it was it was a fun break. Actually, um, ran into our guy. JT in Aspen uh, there on Thursday on the off day after the All-Star game. Wow. Or Wednesday. Was it Wednesday? Was it Wednesday maybe? Wednesday or Thursday? Uh, Thursday. It was Thursday. Ran into him and at him in uh, court uh, in in Aspen. Uh, they went over there for the off day and got a chance to, and it was really random, sitting in my car, 
looked in my mirror and saw a big red bearded guy <laughs> on the street. And I yelled and said, is that Justin Turner? And uh, sure enough, wife turned around, looked, and yep, there's him in court riding bikes in Aspen. And uh, yeah, I had a great chance to catch up with them. So it's uh, nice to see them, especially since, you know, going to Denver, I got to do the draft, like you mentioned, and really didn't run into anyone from the team, um, you know, other than the other representatives that were all there for the other 2019 and I and I and I make sure to point out the 29 other teams because the one cheater team was not included in the draft <laughs> yeah interesting how none of them wanted to show up at the all-star game yeah for sure hey, hey Andre can you explain to fans when you see a former teammate like Justin Turner coincidentally on a vacation in Aspen do you pick up where you left off when you were teammates Oh uh, yeah, it actually was. It was kind of nice catching up. I, you know, he he was as shocked and surprised as I was to uh, you know be, be him seeing me there and seeing them and wondering what I was doing. And um, yeah, it picked up right where we left off, talking about all kinds of things, talking about the state of you know the team where they're at, you know the ups, the downs that happen, and just you know the 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 long monotony of playing that many seasons. JT's a you know a uh, a widely vet with a lot of games on him and seen a lot of stuff and, um, you know, is happy to be included in that all-star break or the all-star game, but was, you know, happy to have that day off afterwards and, and, you know, just kind of be, uh, you know, I have a day to decompress. So yeah, just talking up, catching up with all those things. And, um, you know, and I just gave that little nudge, Hey, enjoy every moment of this. You know, there's nothing more, you know, that I told him I, I wake up and, and, look at that, you know, that game and look at there and, 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 and wish and want to be back out there. But at the same time, uh, having a great time being out here on the road, uh, you know, with my family, enjoying a, a nice summer break with the kids. So enjoy all those times you have on the field and, and take it in. And, uh, and soon enough, you'll be on a, a, a nice couple week vacation with your family before, uh, you know, getting ready <laughs> to start school again here in August. Hey, did you realize how good of a season Justin is having? I know he's had good seasons before, but this is a career year. When we're talking, he's top five in batting average. He has 17 home runs and 55 RBIs. It's a career year for him. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, all those other ones are really good. I think he's a little down on the on the RBIs from where I saw him at his peak. But I think that's a product of you know the team and, and the team not scoring runs the way they're, they're capable of and missing a few key pieces like Seager and, and Bellinger for a large part and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I think it's a career year because of, especially because of those things and uh, you know, where he's at and where this team's at. And if, and when this team gets back into first place and makes the playoffs, he's going to be right there in, in the MVP, uh, you know, talks. I always, I always feel like he gets overlooked because everybody talks about bets and Muncie has big games and we're always talking about the pitching and he's just Mr. Steady. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's what you, it's what I think people forgot what made everyone fall in love with JT as a Dodger, right? In seven, in 16, 17 and 18, that JT was just steady. Yeah, comes through big and clutch in those situations, but it's just a steady guy that you look up at the year and has really good numbers together. 
Um, yeah, he has big games, but doesn't have as many maybe big and crazy games as you saw Seager or Bellinger's or Muncy's having at the same time. So uh, those big game moments might get overshadowed, but I think the um, the body of work over this five, six years, I mean, it stacks up with anyone on this team and anyone in the league. Let's go back to draft night uh, on that Sunday in Denver. I saw a photo of you. You were dressed uh, like you were going to your high school prom. Uh, you had a three-piece suit on. You had very nice shoes. But in the background, I saw two guys that are significant players for their own teams, Tom Browning of the Reds and the crime dog, Fred McGriff. What was it like to be around some of these former players from other teams? Uh, it was unbelievable. It was a great Great experience. Um, couldn't believe I got picked to be able to, you know, go do that and represent, uh, you know, the Dodgers. Um, I guess that's what happens when our guy, rest in peace, Tommy, uh, passes away. Um, you know, he's been the guy who's done that. And actually Browning there mentioned, uh, um, I miss Tommy, but I'm glad I don't have to sit next to him at this thing because I hated playing against Tommy when, you know, he was pitching for the Reds and all those big red machine and Dodger days back in the past. He says he, you know, he actually shared a great story of how he'd be pitching and Tommy would be yelling at him huh. out on the mound when he was pitching. And there's no one more than he, he, he wanted to beat the Dodgers, but he wanted to beat Tommy worse than he wanted to beat the Dodgers because Tommy had such a large mouth. I think the classic photo that we see of Tommy pitching batting practice, no shirt on, blue shorts, throwing batting practice out there, you know, no hat on. Uh, I don't know if you remember that photo, yeah. Dave. Or, most of the fans have seen that. He's like, yeah, he's like, I can remember coming to Dodger Stadium and seeing Tommy out there, and it just made us sick as being Reds players because, you know, that was big rivalry days with the Reds and Dodgers. And um, I can remember even a video of Tommy uh, saying, you know, I hate the color red. Yeah. If I ever see someone wear the color red around me, get out of, you know, that. So, um, you know, brought some full circle uh, storytelling from, you know, the Tommy days to Browning telling the same thing about his uh, – I guess, playing Dave's uh, hatred, passion for the Dodgers and Tommy. So, uh, you know, what a great time to sit there. And then, of course, Fred McGriff. I mean, a, a, a childhood left-handed swing I idolized. And um, and uh, Turk Wendell was sitting on the other side of me, and he made a comment that if you ever saw that helicopter finish when you're pitching against Fred McGriff, you knew you were in trouble because uh, the ball is probably going out of the ballpark if uh, Fred was finishing with that high helicopter finish. Yeah, Fred McGriff, one of the great players that should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he was not a guy that took a little extra to hit his home runs, and he gets lost in the shuffle. Going back to the Reds, Dre, I'm not sure you realize this. Everybody talks about the Dodgers rivalry with Sparky Anderson and the big red machine in the 70s, but in the 80s, it was hot and heavy with uh, guys like Barry Larkin, the Nasty Boys, Tom Browning, who actually David. threw uh, a perfect game against the 88 Dodgers during that regular season. He was not a very light guy if you're a Dodger fan. No, and I, like I said, I, I didn't want to say put words in his mouth, but you said it also. Um, yeah, he did not mince words about his feelings still for the Dodgers this day, and I think it's rightfully so because of the heated rivalry and passion both sides and like he said, he couldn't stand Tommy when he was, you know, and and we've all heard the stories, right, of how Tommy was as a manager and the stuff he did and and the way he played and those speeches we see in the stadium or, you know, you know clips we hear play. And I couldn't imagine 
Tommy being in his heyday in the 70s and 80s there and hearing that from the opposing side, especially, uh, you know, Tommy being confident with a team that was pretty successful and had won some World Series and, you know, had some swagger about him. And, uh, you know, Tommy was definitely strutting and doing his stuff, like he said. You know, so it was, uh, you know, must have been some fun, intense times to be a part of that uh, Reds. Dodgers rivalry back there in the eighties. Yeah, because they were in the same division. People forget it was yeah. the Reds yeah. and Braves and Astros and Dodgers in the NL West. Yep, yep, same division. So yeah, that was like uh, you know the Giants, similar to the Giants rivalry as we have today. You know, um, with that type of intensity and both teams having so much success in the seventies and eighties, and then you know battling in division all the time. So I only can imagine. So yeah, it was a great honor to be. And, you know, be amongst, you know, Ryan Sandberg right there on one side. Cool. That's really uh, cool. Hey, Will Clark, Will, Will oh, the Thrill in front of me. I mean, what talk a great... about uh, rivalries. Nobody that's a Dodger fan likes Will Clark. Hey, I feel you the same way, but it's still an honor to meet the guy. You know, hey, I can remember uh, watching him all those times when I was a kid also and, uh, you know, getting the chance to talk to Will Clark and, um, you know, yeah, he's wearing his Giants tie, and <laughs> I'm wearing my my Dodger white and blue uh, collared shirt that you saw in the photo that represent our team colors. But yeah, it's still an honor to meet him. And so yeah, it's just it was a great time. Um, I mean, the Hawk Andre Dawson was there. Um, you For- know, just a, a great room of uh, players that were assembled to represent the teams. And yeah, and I know you gave me a hard time about it. Um, that the draft doesn't mean anything, and you know, let's wait for four or five years so these guys show up. But um, you know, it, it was an honor. It's the first time that Major League Baseball has tried to um, establish more of a celebratory event surrounding the draft. Because they asked me, Dave, Dave, they asked me this, and I totally didn't recollect this until someone asked me, "What was your draft day remembrance?" Right? And I told them, I said. In 2003, when I got drafted uh, my second time and I signed there by the A's, I was sleeping in my in my apartment, getting ready. And I think it was a Tuesday. I think the draft was held on a Tuesday back then. And my coach, uh, Pat Murphy, who's the bench coach for the Brewers now, calls me and goes, hey, um, do you want to come down to the uh, baseball office and listen to the draft on the computer with us? And so I was still asleep. Draft day, still sleeping, 10 o'clock, because we had a Super Regional game that next Thursday, and I believe it was against Cal State Fullerton. We were going to play uh, at Cal State Fullerton, so we were traveling the next day, Wednesday, to go to Cal State Fullerton. And so that's how much it wasn't a celebratory thing. Like, yeah, it was still an honor and everything to be drafted, but I was sleeping in my dorm room in college, and they didn't make that big of a deal about it. And I was a second-round pick, you know, a higher, you know, top 60 pick and it still wasn't you know it was an honor celebratory but like i was sleeping getting ready to go play a college baseball game two days later that's incredible and now it's turned into a big event now can you tell us what it was like to be in denver and receive the phone call to uh, let everybody know the dodgers were taking maddox bruns as their first pick out of a high school in alabama who called you was it friedman on the other line was it billy gasparino how did that all go down well, you don't really get a call. You actually the, the calls were only for the first uh, couple picks and the guys who rep, who were representing the stand. They just sent a note through uh, MLB Ops, and we got to see it. And then it was kind of just handed through a runner. So oh. uh, the calls, because as you saw, 
that, that was the tough thing about the whole operation was getting more kids who wanted to come sit in the stands and get their name called. And, and that's the tough part about the MLB draft, right? We saw so many kids that were high on the board that definitely fell later to later in the first or not even in the first round. So um, there, I think there's only six or seven kids that actually were in the stands. All six of them did get called that day. So those were the only six who actually received live phone calls from guys like Friedman, or whoever were the teams representing drafting them. So um, I know that's something they they talked about and they kind of discussed with all the the mem- you know all the players that were their representative teams of how we can improve this next year. Um, but I just think it takes more effort, um, you know, from the from the clubs themselves. I know it's a, a close guarded secret of how you're going to outlay your draft and it happens as it unfolds, but. Um, yeah, it was a, a thing where I didn't get a chance to have a phone call because my player wasn't uh, pre- presently, uh, you know, in the building or in the even in the state when his name was called. Hey, we were all waiting for who the Dodgers were going to draft, and as uh, everybody in Los Angeles was hoping for Max Muncy out of Thousand Oaks High School to be drafted by the Dodgers, and we would have two Max Muncies in the same organization, and your former team, the Oakland A's took Max Muncy and the Dodgers were left to take this high school pitcher. Yeah. I don't think Farhan can give up on this Max Muncy guy. Right. I think yeah. Farhan is like Farhan stuck on that. And, and Farhan, I think is, was with the A's when they drafted him originally, the, our, our, you know, the Max Muncy that's on our Dodgers. Yeah. But, Farhan. Well, well he's the that. Giants. He's the, with the Giants. Yeah. But no, the, our Max Muncy we have on the Dodgers, Farhan was the assistant GM in Oakland when he drafted Max Muncy with the A's. That's right. But now he's so, with the Giants, and the A's took Max Muncy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I don't think the A's or whoever can give up on Max Muncy. I think it's like inbred in their <laughs> psyche um, that they lost out on the first Max Muncy, and uh, they can't give that up. Because I, I guarantee if this Max Muncy right now that is on the Dodgers was available, I, I, Farhan would be jumping all over him again. Oh, yeah. Hey, when are right? we when are we going to see you at Dodger Stadium again? I think it would be there uh, sometime in August. Here, I I've got a couple more weeks uh, before my kids go back to school. August 9th, uh, school starts back in in Arizona, and then I think I'll be uh, ready to come back out. Where you know kids will be back in school, so that means uh, I can come out and travel and not be uh, you know play Mister Dad all the time. All right. Yeah, you deserve a break. This has been a great summer for the. It's been an easier summer tour for that family. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great time we show them. It's, it's something where uh, lucky and fortunate, and you know, I'm glad my kids like to hang out with me as much as I, you know, want to hang out with them. And it's a tough part, right? Kids are getting older, and boy, my boys are, my two older ones are starting to get uh, into junior high and stuff. And uh, everyone said it will come, but it is. They start wanting to hang out with you less and less, and you start, you start, start becoming less of a cool dad and more of an annoying dad. So. Um, you know, that's a, that's another tough thing. So I'm enjoying every moment I have with that and, uh, enjoying being on the road with them. And, um, but like I know, and, and you, and I've told you, and you saw me there at the stadium, I, I love being at Dodger stadium. I can't wait to go out there and be bothered by you again. <laughs> in the home. I mean, can a guy watch a game in peace without you coming and finding him out in the stands? Hey, wherever you are, I will always find you. Do you know how much crap I got for that? They think every time you're somewhere, I'm right next to you. Everybody gave me a lot of crap on the team for being out there with a microphone with you. 
Oh, did they? Hey, it's all right. Hey, we know we we know that you need me around. We'll keep it going next week, Andre. Always great to hear from you, and thanks a lot for sharing your great experience. And uh, fans love hearing you. And I feel like I was a lot nicer this episode than I was the last one. You're you're too moody. You're too moody all the time, back hey. and forth, up and down. I'm just trying to keep it equal. I'm I'm trying to be the calm that comes to your storm all the time. Hey, I'll try to be calmer and gentler with this new Andre Eth here. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. And like I said, I look forward to uh, a good second half of baseball here for the Dodgers. And, uh, you know, let's figure out a way to get back in first place. And I can't wait to see all the fans uh, again in the stadium. And uh, I feel free to come up and bother me anytime. All the fans feel free to. Dave, you can you can stay away for nine innings. All right. Sounds good. I'll, when you're in the left field pavilion, I'll stay in the right field pavilion. All right. Fair enough. We don't even want, we don't want you out there. Just step in your press box where all you all you hoity-toity people stay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Obviously, you haven't been there because it's the farthest thing from hoity-toity. <laughs> all right, Dre. Thanks, you man. Later. There he goes, Andre Ethier, who obviously has never been into the press box at Dodger Stadium. It has character. I'll put it that way. But it's nothing like his nice home run seats out there in uh, right field or left field. And I strongly encourage you, if you have the chance, to buy a ticket just for a game. Just take me up on it. Buy two tickets out there in those home run seats. You will love it. They bring your food to you. So that's the biggest thing. You don't have to go to the concession stand. You could sit in your seats, have a great view, and they bring your food and drinks to you. So slam dunk. We're not just saying that. Those are really great seats. Thanks again to Andre Ethier. Thanks again to Gil Hodges Jr. Loved hearing about his father. Hope you learned something about the great Gil Hodges. And hopefully they put him in the Hall of Fame where he rightly deserves. And if he doesn't, he'll always be beloved by Dodger fans and Met fans from coast to coast. We will talk to you next week on Episode 17 of the Extra Innings Podcast presented by Corona. See ya. We don't have to do anything extra. They've made a choice. This has been the Extra Innings Podcast. Extra Dodger content for Dodger fans who can't get enough of the blue. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss a single Dodger game at AM570LA Sports on the iHeartRadio app.